Good morning. This is a quick turnaround from Thanksgiving to Christmas, right? But we got the whole place decorated for Christmas, and it looks wonderful. And so now we get our minds around looking forward uh, to Jesus and the, and the celebration of him coming to this earth, which is a wonderful thing to look forward to. As we prepare our hearts for Christmas, I have one question for you. What kind of gift receiver are you? Not a gift giver, but a gift receiver, okay? There's two kinds of gift receivers. There's the person that wants to plan it all out themselves. They want to pick out their own gift. They'll tell their spouse or their kids or whatever, this is exactly what I want, and no surprises. Give me this gift. And then there's the surprise gift receiver, the person that uh, has no idea what they're getting, and they love it that way. They love to be surprised on Christmas morning. Now, I'll admit, I'm the person that likes to plan my own gift. But Chelsea won't get, uh, let me get away with that. Chelsea loves to surprise me. In fact, she told me, my wife told me, she's already bought my Christmas gift. And I said, what is it? She said, I'm not telling you. It's a surprise. And she keeps teasing me with this. And so now I'm going to have to, for the next what is it, five weeks? I got to wait and let the anticipation uh, build. But I was the type of kid, even as a kid, I was the type of person that wanted to know what he was going to get before Christmas morning. So I was a snoop. I was looking under the bed in mom and dad's closet. I knew the top shelf where they were always hid, in the attic, wherever. So Christmas morning came, and if I didn't know, I was shaking it until I could find out what was going to be uh, given, even before I unopened, uh, unwrapped the present. Now, I heard of, this is, I think this is true. Someone told me this. There was two sets of parents, neighbors, that had kids just like me, snooping around, finding their presents before Christmas Day. And these two families had kids that were close in age. They each had a boy in the second grade, and they each had a girl in the fourth grade. And so they got together, and they were talking among each other, and the mom came up with a fantastic idea. When we buy our presents for our kids, we'll hide them at your house, and when you buy presents for your kids, you can hide them at our house. And so sure enough, the kids find the presents. They're, they think they know what they're getting. But surprise, surprise, when they open their presents on Christmas morning, it's not, none of it is what they found hidden around the house. And then an even bigger surprise, they look out the window. How come Jimmy's riding my bicycle? It's because it's not your bicycle. <laughs> that was Jimmy's bicycle. And uh, it would work for one year, right? And then, the, and, then the, uh, and then the jig is up, and you can't do it again. But surprise, surprise, they got uh, presents they didn't expect. Now, even though I liked planned gifts, I have learned that the best gifts in life are the things that are unexpected. Now, beyond Christmas, I'm talking about the big things in life. I look, at, I look at my own life and I think of all the things that I cherish the most, the biggest blessings, and I didn't anticipate hardly any of them. In fact, I'll give you the biggest example, and this is meant to be a huge compliment, so don't take it the wrong way. But when I was a young man and uh, wanting to get married, I made a list 
of all the things that I wanted in a wife. And then I met Chelsea, and she had nothing on the list. In fact, the only thing she had on the list was that she loved Jesus. That's the only check mark. But, I, but as I got to know her, and now that we have shared life together, she's way better than the list. She, came, uh, she, she was a surprise to me, but I look at it now and I say, that was the biggest unexpected gift that God ha- could give to us. Now, uh, now, when we open up to Isaiah 52 and 53 this morning, which is what we're going to go through during Advent, we're going to see so many surprises. Things that if we just used our worldly wisdom, our worldly understanding, things that we would never anticipate in the Son of God coming to this earth. Now, this is a prophecy that's written well before Jesus came, but it is one of the most detailed passages uh, predicting who Jesus would be, what Jesus would be like, and who he was, and what he would do. It is quite amazing that this passage was written 680 years before Jesus came. One scholar has called it the Mount Everest of prophecy. It's the highest peak, and uh, and it's a beautiful passage for us to consider. But when we look at this, it's going to be full of surprises. Because if we were to write the story, we would have a much different picture of what we would have the Savior of the world be. We would cloak him with worldly power and prestige and all of these things, and that's not what we see here, but what we see here is a surprise, and it's an unexpected gift. Far better than what we could ever come up with on our own. So, the, so the starting this morning, we're going to go through Isaiah 52, verse 13, through the end of Isaiah 53. Now, we're not going to cover it all this morning. This is what we're going to cover over the next weeks in the Advent. We're going to cover Isaiah 52, uh, 13, which that's the start of the section. You know, the Bible chapters were added later on. This is one of those unfortunate breaks. It really should break at Isaiah 52, verse 13. It continues through verse, through chapter 53. And we're going to cover just the end of chapter 52 this morning. But because it's such a rich passage of Scripture, and I want us to get our minds around the whole thing, we're going to read all the way through the end of chapter 53. In fact, we don't typically do this, but just in honor of the reading of God's precious word this morning, I invite you to stand and we'll read Isaiah 52, 13 through the end of 53. This is God's unexpected gift. See, my servant will act wisely and he will be lifted, he will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being, and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand." Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, 
and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God. Stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we have been healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him. And cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his day, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and will be satisfied. And by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great. And he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. So he bore the sins of many and, was, and made intercessor, intercession for the transgressors. Father God, these, these verses are almost unbelievable if they were not true. And God, to think that you sent your Son to this earth bear the punishment to take the to take the beating and the crucifixion for us it's hard for us to even grasp to get our minds around but god we come before you now and we ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear the truth that you would have for us god open up our hearts to how much you really do love us and how much you have done for us. And as we do, I pray that we would bow the knee in our hearts and we would surrender our lives to you and dedicate ourselves to you. Thank you for today. Thank you for this scripture. And I pray that you would open it up to us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Can you believe these words about Jesus? It doesn't paint the prettiest picture of who Jesus is. In fact, he's described as appalling. There's no beauty or majesty that people would be attracted to him. 
Not the picture I would paint of Jesus if I was to predict what he, would, he was going to look like. It says that he was crushed by the Lord, that he suffered and was beaten. It even paints a picture of Jesus as, as being weak. It says, like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. It's a remarkable passage. But I want to just, as we dig into this, I want to ground it in something that the very first verse that I read says. In verse 13, it says that God acts wisely. My servant acts wisely. There is a wisdom here in all that uh, takes place in this passage that it looks forward to Jesus. There is a wisdom here that if we could just get our minds around, it will give us a depth of knowledge about God and what he has done for us that we could not get with our own understanding. You see, this is God's wisdom. There's a divine wisdom here. If we use earthly wisdom, none of this will make any sense. But God has a wisdom here that uh, has the ability to sink deep into our hearts and actually change our lives. This is one of the most important passages in all of Scripture, I think. As I said, Isaiah penned these words some 680 years before they were fulfilled in the person of Jesus. And the details here, especially around his death, give strong proof that God is the author of Scripture. Because the details are so minute that no human could have predicted them by accident. And no imposter could have fulfilled them by, their, by his uh, cunning cleverness. That this has to be of the Lord. And not only the details of what happened, the, the important truths that are explained in these prophecies. Charles Spurgeon says that Isaiah 53 is the Bible in miniature and the gospel in essence. In other words, the whole message of the Bible, the good news of God, is contained here in this section of Scripture. And so these are so valuable for us, so important, so rich and beneficial. And, and the New Testament writers knew this. In fact, if you were to go through the books of the Bible, Isaiah 53 is referenced in, get this, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 uh, Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, 1 Timothy, Titus, Hebrews, 1 Peter, and 1 John. You think the New Testament writers knew this was important? Like, this is amazing stuff. What we're going to dig into for the next few months, or for the next month, I should say, is, is going to be so valuable for us. In fact, Jesus himself quoted this passage in reference to himself. And so there are truths here. Now, they are surprising truths. I want to point out two surprising truths in the, in the verses that we read to, today. The first is in verse 13. Verse 13 says, See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. We'll call the first surprising truth, the lowly servant is lifted high. Now, I put the adjective lowly before a servant, but it really would not need to be there if we understood this from the time that it was written. A servant is the lowliest person. It's the bottom of the totem pole. A servant would be, uh, would be equivalent to, and I, 
Um, maybe the guy that cleans up the manure at the horse track or the garbage collector or the, or the person that uh, cleans up the bathrooms at the hotel. But no one would think that the maid at the hotel is going to rise to become the CEO of Hilton Hotels. But yet this passage says that the lowly servant is lifted up. Even Jesus himself said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, if Jesus were to come as a prince, be born in a palace, be have a ki uh, king's crown on his head and, and be shining with glory, that would have been humiliating enough that the God of the universe, the one who spoke the world into being in all of his glory was born as a king. But we don't see him born as a king. We see him born in a manger among stinky farm animals. Every summer, my family and I, we go back to Iowa where I grew up. I grew up on a farm. And as soon as you open the door, that whiff, that wave of smell from the pigs or the cows or whatever, Believe me, nobody would choose to be born in a manger among the farm animals. You're going to pick the most sanitary hospital you can find when you have your child. But yet Jesus was born in this lowly state. And it makes me wonder why. Why would Jesus be born as a lowly servant? I think the reason, now we're trying to get into the mind of God and use God's wisdom, because our earthly wisdom doesn't make sense here. But here's what I think as I've tried to wrestle with this. I think in God's wisdom, God had Jesus born as a lowly servant so that we would know that he could enter into our lives at our lowest points. That there would never be anything that we could do or go through that would cause us to think, well, I am beneath God's love. God couldn't reach me where I am at. Jesus, when he was born as a lowly servant, is able to enter into our lives no, ma uh, no matter how low we feel like we have sunk or no matter what struggles we feel like we are experiencing. Have you ever had relational struggles and you wonder, could God really understand what I am going through right now? Jesus had relational struggles. In fact, we're given one event from his birth to when he starts his ministry. At the age of 12, he traveled to Jerusalem. And, uh, and when the trip was over, his parents left, and they left Jesus behind. Now, if that was this day and age, social services would be called in. He'd be investigated for child abuse. That's neglect. They didn't even realize he wasn't with them for a couple days. Jesus, I'm not saying Mary and Joseph were terrible parents, but I'm saying he, they, he didn't have perfect parents. And you may not have perfect parents either. And maybe when you have experienced, maybe you have experienced abandonment and betrayal, and Jesus experienced that as well. On the night when he went before Pontius Pilate and, and eventually was beaten and crucified, his disciples were spread out in all kinds of directions. Nobody was there. They all abandoned him in his time of need. Jesus is able to, to come into our lives when we have relational struggles. Now, maybe you feel like you have, uh, have had or, or are having financial problems. 
Jesus is able to relate. In fact, Jesus, it says, oftentimes did not have a place to lay his head at night. Or maybe it's the anxiety and the fear that is in your life. Jesus, on the night uh, when he was betrayed, prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, and the anxiety was so overwhelming that his sweat became like drops of blood. And the fear was so much uh, there that he prayed, Father, if there is any way for you to take this cup from me, will you do that? Yet not my will be done, but your will be done. Maybe it is the struggle with sin and temptation. Or maybe it is the struggle that you feel like God has even abandoned you. And Jesus cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, Jesus can enter into our lives, our struggles, no matter where we are. The fact that he became a lowly servant communicates to us that he is able to enter into our lives no matter what we are going through. Not only to uh, relate, but also to help us. Speaking of struggles with sin and temptation, I want to give you this verse, Hebrews 4. And again, we talk about surprise, surprise. This may be a surprising verse. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with us with our weakness, but we have one who was tempted in every way. You think you have a temptation that Jesus hasn't experienced Not according to this verse. We have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. You see, the lowly servant is below, but then the the promise of the pastor is that the lowly servant is lifted up. When Jesus enters into our lives at our low moments, he is able to not only empathize with us, but he is able to lift us up. We're invited to approach the throne of grace with confidence to find grace and receive help in our time of need. And as Jesus lifts us up, we invite him into our lives. And we surrender ourselves to him and we ask that he be in charge of our lives and we offer him praise and worship. You see, that's how I think the lowly servant lifted up. It's when, he ta- it's when he is exalted in our hearts and in our lives and in our priorities. The lowly servant is lifted up. That's the first surprising truth. And it is wise and it is beautiful. Now, the is found in verse 14, just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being, and his form marred beyond human likeness. We'll call the second surprising truth, the lovely Lord looks appalling. The lovely Lord looks appalling. Now surely this is speaking of Jesus' beating and uh, his crucifixion. But Jesus' humiliation starts even before that. It starts with the fact that Jesus took on a human body which could be disfigured and could be marred. Uh, Jesus Jesus was born in the the manger uh, as a baby, even though he had existed for all eternity past in spirit in the glories of heaven. And he took on a, a human body. 
And then after he has uh, lived a perfect life, he is brought before Pontius Pilate, and Pontius Pilate tries to bargain with the people. Let him go. He's done nothing wrong. But they cry, crucify him. So to try to appease the people, he sends them out to the torturers, people that have been trained to, to hurt people, to torture people, to beat them. And with a, with a whip that is specially designed with shards of glass and stone and bone in the end of it in such a way to dig into the flesh and rip it off. 39 times is as much as the Roman law would allow one to be scourged. And uh, with 39 lashes, scholars think that the flesh and the muscle was so torn off of Jesus' back that his inner organs could have been seen. That's what it's talking about when it says that his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and and his form marred beyond human likeness. Now, when we're given a picture of Jesus in heaven, in Isaiah chapter 6, it says that even the angels cover their eyes because they cannot look upon him in his glory. They cover his eyes and they cry, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The angels in heaven cover their eyes because of God's glory. People on earth cover their eyes because they cannot look at a body that looks like this. This is the humiliation of Jesus. Now, why would Jesus do that? Again, what's the wisdom behind the lovely Lord looking so appalling? The answer is found in Romans 8, 5. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The reason that Jesus was beaten and flogged and crucified was to demonstrate, now it's more than this, but this is one reason, to demonstrate how much he loves us. To show us that he really wants to be in our lives. Now, many will not believe that. Many will think that that sounds ridiculous, sounds like foolishness, but to us who are being saved, that's the love of God. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the message of the cross is foolishness, to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And so these are the surprising truths of the passage. That the lowly servant is lifted up, that the lovely Lord looks appalling. And it is surprising. In fact, that's what verse 15 says. And I'll read this from the New Living Translation. Uh, Isaiah 52, 15 says, And he will again startle many nations. They'll almost be caught off guard. They're startled. Kings will stand speechless. The the speech makers of the world, those that give all the important proclamations, the kings will stand speechless in his presence. For they will not see what they had not previous, for they will see what they had not previously been told about. They will understand what they had not heard about. In other words, no one would have ever thought to speak these words. No one has ever told them or, or you would have never uh, imagined thinking these things and yet they will see and they will understand. There is uh, one, there is, if we were to summarize verse 15 with a facial expression, it would be this. Okay, you ready? Here's verse 15. It's, it's complete surprise. You would never imagine this. 
uh, it, was, it would be like this uh, phrase, and you've heard this said before, you can't make this stuff up. And no human would make it up. It's, it's outside of what we would imagine. And yet God, in his divine wisdom, has made it up. He's designed it in such a way to show off how much he loves us and how he wants to come into our lives, even at our lowest points. When I was in the eighth grade, I had an English writing class. And, uh, the, and the teacher said, write a short story. You can make it about anything you want. Be as creative as you want. And so I took her literally. I thought, I'm going to write this great story. And, and I'll be honest, I'll tell you what the story is. I can remember it to this day. I love this story. I thought it was a great story. I was on the basketball team. I wasn't very good, but I was on the team. And uh, so I decided to write about this basketball team that was so bad that the coach quit. And so one of the players, and this is how my eighth grade mind worked, one of the players thought, I'll be the coach. And so they had a player coach. And with the player coach, they became so good that they won the city championship. This was my short story, and I turned it in. I was very proud of it. I thought, this is a great story. At the top of the uh, review, at the top of the grading paper that the teacher gave back to me, she said, this would never happen in real life. It's way too far-fetched. And I wonder if that's how God feels when we hear the story of Jesus. He feels uh, let down that we could not get our minds around this. It almost sounds unbelievable. In fact, we have to receive it by faith. This is the call of Christmas, is to believe the unbelievable. Last night, uh, we watched, uh, my family at least, we watched the USC Trojans beat the Notre Dame Fighting Irish. And the week before that, we watched the USC Trojans dismantle the UCLA Bruins. Didi says, get out of here. <laughs> but these, these, these were some of the best games I've seen, uh, especially by the quarterback, Caleb Williams. As, we were, as Chelsea and I were watching the game last night, we kept saying, unbelievable. I can't believe that he's done that. It's, it's unbelievable, and yet we believed it because we saw it. What we hear about Jesus is unbelievable, but yet it is believable because it's true. The Son of God, the, uh, the God of all creation, the one who existed in glory from eternity past, was so glorious that he took on a human form to be born as a, a baby manger and the, as a servant, the lowest of lows. And then this baby, who has no beginning, and no end in the essence of the second person of the Trinity, has no beginning and no end, is born and dies. And not only dies any sort of death, dies the most humiliating death that you could imagine, the death on a cross, hanging there all by himself, feeling abandoned by his own heavenly Father. It is a surprising truth that sounds unbelievable, but it's true. Now, how do I know that it's true? I'll give you three why I know that this is true. First of all, the disciples saw it, they knew that it happened, and they said that it was true. And every one of them stuck to their story to the very end of their lives. All the disciples, except for John, who died on a, as a prisoner on uh, the island of Patmos, and Judas, who, is betrayed, who betrayed Jesus and 
took his own life. The rest of them all were killed for this truth. And you would think at least one of them would have caved if it was a made-up story. Fine, fine, fine. Don't kill me. Don't take my life. We made it up in the back room. It's not true. But every one of them went to their death saying that it was true. It has to be true. And I know it's also true because so many Christians, followers of Jesus, through the centuries, Excuse me. Through the centuries, the last 2,000 years have had their lives changed by it. And the third reason I know it's true is because I'm one of those that I raise my hand and, I, and, I, and many of you are the same. You'd raise your hand and you'd say, I know it's true because of what God has done in my life. That he's forgiven my sins and he's given me that peace that surpasses all understanding. And he's filled my heart with joy and love that was not there before Jesus came into my life. You see, I know it's true. It's got to be true. It sounds unbelievable, but it's believable because it's true. This is how much God loves us. He comes as a lowly servant so that he can enter into our lives no matter how far we have sunk. And don't ever think you're below the, uh, the reach of God's love. God, God has come so that he can enter into your life, and he has come because he loves you so much. How much does he love you? He was beaten and hung from a cross that shows how much he loves you. And so what ought we to, to, to do in response to this today? Three applications. One is worship. Just stand in awe of, of the amazing, unexpected gifts of God. Just say, God, thank you so much for what you have done. Just worship him. Two, I would challenge you to ask of every good thing from the Lord. If God loves you so much, just go over the top asking him for anything. Come before his throne of grace with confidence. But remember as you ask that God is a God of surprises. And sometimes he does not give us exactly as we ask, but he gives us what is best because he has a wisdom that we do not understand. So ask any and every good thing from the Lord, and whatever he gives you, receive with gratitude. And then the third application is to find your complete happiness in the Lord. To know that Jesus is ultimately the one that can satisfy your soul. The great theologian John Calvin of the Reformation said, unless they put their complete happiness in his hands, they will never truly have their lives under his control. See, this is what it means to be a Christian. In fact, this is what it means to have our lives fulfilled in, uh, in, for what God desires for us, is to have our lives under his control. But don't buy into the lie that Jesus is a killjoy. Because, and this will be a surprise for many, Jesus actually wants what is best for you. His life is the life that leads to real joy. So find your complete happiness in Jesus. See Jesus as the source of your happiness. In fact, when you put your life under his control and you receive his commandments, not as some uh, obligation that you have to do because Jesus wants to keep you from something. No, you receive his commandments because you know that that's leading you into the very best life possible. See Jesus as the source of your complete happiness. 
So would you like to receive him into your life today? Maybe you've been a Christian for a long time, and you're like, I think I needed... For me is. Did I lose power? I'm on. Uh, and, and so you receive that love for, uh, from God again. And maybe you're here this morning, and you've never made that decision, but something clicked this morning. It's kind of that, that, that unexpected moment, and you're like, you know what? I really do believe that Jesus came to this earth, and he lived a perfect life, and he died on the cross, and after three days, he rose from the dead. It sounds unbelievable, but I'd like to place my faith and my trust in him. I actually believe that he has what is best for me. If that's the decision you'd like to make today, I invite you to, let, to invite him into your life. And it's a simple act of faith to say, God, I have sinned, I have disobeyed you, but I recognize that you are the best, and that you've come to this world so that I could have my sins forgiven. I give you my life, and you receive him into your heart. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. As we bow our heads and close our eyes, uh, the worship team is going to come forward, and the prayer counselors are going to come to the front. And if you are here this morning and you're ready to make that decision, hey, I want to be a follower of Jesus. One of the best things that you could have happen to you this morning is to have another uh, Christian pray over you and ask for God's blessing upon you. So if you're making that decision this morning, I invite you to come forward and to receive prayer for one of the prayer counselors. And if you are here this morning and uh, you're rededicating your life to the Lord, I invite you to come and receive prayer as well. Or maybe it's not one of those big decisions, but you just want prayer because you know that you need it. And it doesn't even mean that you're in the gutter. Maybe you're flying high, but you just would say, I'd love to pray with someone and offer gratitude for the Lord. The prayer counselors would love to, to pray with you. Father God, we thank you that you love us so much, that you sent your son, Jesus, who existed for all eternity in your glory, full of glory himself, to, be, to come and to be born as a baby in a lowly manger. And the symbolism of that is that you came to be able to enter into our lives no matter where we are at. And so, God, again, this morning, we ask that you would come into our lives. You know what's going on in our hearts and in our minds and our lives better than we even know ourselves. You know us from the inside out. You know the number of hairs on our head. And so, God, we offer ourselves to you this morning and ask that you would be in control of our lives, knowing that when you are in control of our lives, we have the source of complete happiness. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.